Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. I, I like this question a lot. We have such a <laughs> smart audience. <laughs> we really do. I love it. Hello, welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Bryn Gleason. I do the visual art for this podcast. And this episode, in honor of the 50th episode, I will be interviewing your typical hosts, Sam and Alexi, from a collection of questions from listeners like you. So thanks for supporting the show. And without further ado, let's dive and get heavy. All right. So first, um, I have a question from one of your listeners named Kyle. Uh, He would like to know how you guys find new music and how you find time to listen to it. So there's a a lot of different ways that I find music and they've kind of changed over time as technology has changed and my tastes have changed. But they can be summarized as playlists. So I have a playlist that I keep with Sam and with uh, other people whose tastes I deem decent. And we, (laughs) that was pompous. We basically will share like different songs and albums throughout the year. And we keep up with that. And it's become sort of a good little cheat sheet for our mid-year and year-end listenings. I also have a, the old guy in me has a bunch of bookmarks on their, on on my browser (laughs) with all these different labels and zines and sort of different online curators that I cycle through, uh, between once a week or, and once a month and also conversations, just talking to people and now being out in the world and hearing about things, uh, is another way that I find out about music. Looking forward to getting back to shows as well, because sometimes it's fun to actually not research a lineup before you go to a show (laughs) and then then just get take it in. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, no, I agree. I I definitely miss live shows purely for the fact of, you know, live music is what we did sometimes four nights in one week. It was uh, a big place where I found my music. I remember specifically, it, they might not be a metal band, but remember when we saw Earthless and uh, Kikugakumoyo opened for them? And we were like, what the hell is this? Like, we were just blown away. And it was something I don't think would have come on our radar if we didn't go to that show, you know? And so I, I think shows are a great opportunity for people to engage with new music and engage with bands who are trying to come up. Uh, so that I think is my primary method of finding new music outside of that metal forums, uh, like the heavy metal archive is really good that I, I trust that dude's opinion on a lot of things, but there are some things where I'm like, maybe not. Uh, but overall I find a lot of really good music on that forum. Um, 
like Alexei said, metal labels uh, do a really good job, especially when they're promoting new albums. Uh, yeah, they tend to be good at promoting their own albums, right? God, you would hope so. <laughs> yeah, those emails, uh, they blast you. But, you know, uh, it, it's worth it. Even if you're you find yourself low on time, you can kind of just skim through an album. If if you feel like you like that sound, then I what I tend to do is I go back and I'll listen to that album in its whole. Um, and then, yeah, going out conversations at a bar that is uh where i find a lot of really good music with like-minded people have either of you had success with your listening platforms doing the research for you i know like on spotify it listens to you know (laughs) what i'm listening to and then it's like recommended playlist for you or check out this artist have you found that any of your listening platforms are successful at that or do you like ignore the machine that's a really good question why don't you ask why don't you answer that sam (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah the the omnipresent uh internet is actually good sometimes honestly i think uh Spotify has recommended some things to me as actually how I found Sylvain uh, was through a Spotify recommendation. I was on an also binge when they put out their last record and little did I know I'd find this Sylvain band. They're like, hey, you feel like also you love this. And nice. God damn, they were right. <laughs> I think the algorithms are pretty good. And it's one of those things where the algorithms are also about as good as the information that you give them to. So it can become a catch 22 if you're very concerned about your privacy and you don't want to give the algorithms and you don't want to give YouTube a, a lot of your information, right. then that may inhibit what it's able to recommend. But if you do, uh, interact with Spotify and YouTube quite a bit, you can get really good results. So that's a, that's a good point. Like I think the algorithms are very good. And so you can trust uh, streaming platforms quite a bit to make some good recommendations. Yeah. I mean, you think they collect data on everyone and they, you know, they can pair what other people listen to. And if they notice you're a listener kind of like that person, that's kind of how it comes across. And I think it's great. Uh, switching over to beer, if you don't mind, uh, I have a question from one of your listeners named George. He wants to know what was your first beer that you had that made you think, wow, this is amazing. I want to know more about the world of beer for George. It was the victory at sea from ballast point. It's a good question, George. So for me, um, as far as first go, I tend to catalog my memories with drinking that like pretty early more as experiences because I may remember more really enjoying things at certain places and those things carrying meaning uh, for a specific time of where I may have been at my in my life as well. So I'm so not going to answer a specific beer that got you into beer. It was more of like the culture. I can say that Bourbon County Stout was the first beer I hated. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. I remember drinking that and uh, Brooklyn Black Chocolate Stout. I remember drinking Black Chocolate Stout in the basement of Local Option and thinking that this beer was gross. It it probably was because that basement was hot and the beer was probably not kept super well. (laughs) But I remember those like big, huge Russian Imperial Stouts that were 12% and those big barrel-aged beers to be very challenging to drink when my palate was more acclimated to lighter, whether it was like European lagers that I enjoyed on my trips or when I was at home. 
So uh, getting into like, uh, you know, victory at sea or other things like that didn't warm up to me straight away. But what I will say is that drinking at places like Local Option uh, for me were formative because I was in an environment where my curiosity was sort of peaked and I was w with people who knew how to guide someone's uh, flavor adventure. And for me, I would say that being in the presence of people like that, that are very good at curating lists and guiding someone's experience was probably more formative than any individual experience with any beer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. I have very distinct memories with uh, my first beer. Uh, I guess I could tell a funny story about my very first beer. I was uh, eight or nine, I think, and my dad was drinking. Ripe young age. Yeah, ripe young <laughs> age. My dad was drinking Bud Light or Miller Light in our uh, uh, driveway, and I had a sip of it because, you know, he was like, yeah, try it. Yeah. And uh, I hated it. Oh, God, I hated it. And so I kind of, when I came of age, just avoided beer till I worked at uh, Frontier. And I always stood by the fact that I hated beer because of that one experience when I was eight or nine. And uh, I think I've told this story on our first episode of the podcast, but I had a shifty and my bar manager was asking me what I wanted and I didn't like beer. So I was like, I don't know just pour me something and he ended up pouring me off colors apex predator and uh i'd never had a beer that had so much going on in it because i just avoided beer <laughs> uh but it, it kind of changed my perspective on what beer could be even though we were a cocktail bar uh you know i would try all the different beers that we would have on draft and it kind of opened up uh a world of alcoholic beverages that I kind of just ignored, uh, most of my life. Uh, so definitely that. And then when I met Alexi, you introduced me to Lambics, which was a style of beer that I had no idea existed. I, and I immediately gravitated towards them because of how wine-like they were. Uh, and so, you know, I think these Belgian inspired ales and these Belgian ales are really what got me into beer and expanded me into other realms of beers, such as like IPAs or even the heavy Imperial stouts and stuff like that. Uh, Belgians inspired and Belgian ales were definitely the, the gateway drug. <laughs> For the host of today's episode, oh. what was your first beer? Do you have an answer to this question? Um, well, my, my first beer is similar to, uh, to Sam. I, I think I like dunked my pinky finger into my dad's beer and he was probably drinking a lager of some kind. And, uh, I hated it. Tried the same thing with my mom's wine. Hated that too. Um, oh, I, I love as a kid. beer that I actually really liked was the Fulton Sweet Child of Vine in Minneapolis. Um, it was great. I had one recently to like be nostalgic and I didn't like it as much anymore, but it was, it was perfect for the time. What did you like about that beer? Um, it was kind of like, don't judge me here because it was, it was a while ago and I'm not a, a beer expert like, like the others in the room, but it was <laughs> kind of sweeter while still being hoppy and bitter. 
Um, and it kind of had like a multi thing. It was sort of like a, a little combo, but it's an easy drinking beer. I kind of graduated into the more like punch you in the face with bitter hops, like the Surly Furious and the Bell's Too Hearted is kind of where I've just gotten stuck for the rest of my life when it comes to beer. Um, but yeah, the Fulton was like more, more subtle hops and I felt like it was more approachable, um, for someone who, you know, I didn't have a palate for beer at all. I think that that like bitter sweet was something that I gravitated towards a little bit. I remember drinking three Floyd's gumball head, uh, Mm -hmm. like maybe 2008 when it was like a very turbid cloudy beer and it was like a little bit sweeter and it had all this like stuff in suspension still. So it was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> looked like what we would call a hazy IPA uh-huh. <laughs> in 2021. Uh, but it was like that bitter and sweet balance that I, uh, that I enjoyed a lot. It's and that delightful. was, yeah. th- that was mm-hmm. what drew me towards uh, that brewery in general. That's so interesting. I feel like as my palate's grown, uh, you introduced me to Maine back when we worked uh, at Kuma's together. To the state or the brewery? You know, (laughs) I got to say, I was very familiar with the state. You'll be glad to know. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, Maine Brewing, we just had them on the show, but the way that they are able to craft that delicate flavor profile into something that's so light and crisp is just unbelievable. And it you know, it, it'll sneak up on you before you know it. <laughs> so let's switch over to uh, the world of music. We have another question from George, and he would like to know about some of your first memories where you were introduced into the world of metal. Um, like, was there an influential specific band for you? For George, uh, he started diving into heavy music when he first heard the album Fear of the Dark from Iron Maiden. Yeah, I can start. Uh, <laughs> I think it might not be metal as, as far as, you know, uh, the movie's concerned, but school of rock and Jack black really is what took me down yeah. that rabbit. I was so, I was at that young age. I was like, what did that come out? 2001. I was like, what? First grade, second grade. And I just remember him scolding the kids because he's like, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, And none of them are like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, what? And he's like, Black Sabbath. And I'm like, all right, I need to know like all these bands, you know. And my dad introduced me to like Zeppelin and ACDC, but he hated Black Sabbath. So I went down that rabbit hole. And from there, you know, a few years later, Lamb of God put out Ashes of the Wake. And I know everyone listening is like, so you went from Black Sabbath to Lamb of God. That's quite a jump. But... That was the time. The early 2000s were whack, man. It was either you were listening to new metal or like, you know, you were on some kind of retro trip. Uh, But yeah, Lamb of God put out Ashes of the Wake and uh, that really got me into heavy, heavy music. And then Behemoth put out uh, Demigod shortly after, I think like a year or two later. Like 2004, 2005. Yeah, it might have been like a year later. And so, you know, that was just a steamroll of like, heavy fucking music that I was just digging and you know following behemoth through that transition from that to evangelion where it was a crisper sound into the satanist where they brought in those black metal elements I'd never known that really existed I grew up in the burbs so I was just floored I thought that was a sound that was just entirely unique uh come to move to the city and find out yeah no that album still holds up very unique (laughs) um 
But yeah, when I moved here, I was introduced to the Chicago metal scene. And I think that was where my taste kind of flourished. Um, I unknowingly went to a Scorched Tundra before I even knew Alexi and saw Wound and Bong Ripper play, which is nice. kind of funny in hindsight, you know, thinking about it. But um, I think that was a show that I, you know, can earmark uh, when my taste started expanding not only from Chicago, but beyond into Europe and um, finding bands like Alsa and, you know, Russian circles kind of vibe as well. Just the ambient as fuck and, you know, <laughs> zone out. <laughs> so, so School of Rock was your gateway drug into School all of that. Rock was the gateway <laughs> drug. Thank you, Jack Black. What about you, Alexi? So I'm going to, since this is also a question George asked, I'm going to answer it in the similar manner as I did for George's last question. <laughs> so, so for me, I can't really point to like a first album. I think that I would more say that the pursuit of finding new music was as cool or as interesting as the music itself. I really enjoyed sort of the process of finding new bands, like looking at where the sources were, like where was this music? Like what retailers carried it? Like what labels mm. carried it? What distributors carried it? Like I dorked out so hard on the music <laughs> business side of it as much as the music because unlike Sam, uh, I had no uh, musical talent whatsoever. <laughs> and my ear is, uh, like very trained, it's not natural in any way. So my, like as a result, I kind of gravitated towards different aspects of the music industry. I mean, not to say I don't enjoy music, I love it, but uh, finding places like uh, Metal Haven was a, a really, really big thing for me. Metal Haven was a, a record shop here in Chicago. And I remember kind of going into that place as a, uh, in middle school and bringing in like a Slayer album and I was like, I want something that sounds like uh, War Ensemble. Uh -huh. And then, <laughs> so uh, I think it may have been like Blake from Knock Mystium was working there at that time. And he like picked up a fistful of albums and was like, every song's like War Ensemble on every <laughs> single one of these albums. <laughs> and uh, much like kind of the story I told earlier about Local Option, it was the same sort of thing. Like I kind of became very interested in not just like the music itself, but sort of how people acquired knowledge about it and how you could kind of share it with other people. Mm -hmm. Do you think sharing it with other people is it also brought into your horizons as well uh when when you share something with someone they inevitably share something with you do you end up taking that person's uh taste and does it carry a weight with you or do you uh kind of cast their opinion aside and just well you can kind of like curtail that in some way by only sharing with certain people right that is true so <laughs> I, you know i i would say that i do tend to keep an open mind and i certainly was very very open-minded for a long time and i think that that kind of led to a lot of opportunities in a lot of places so you know i i would also say that things like uh torrenting I don't know who remembers that. Uh, <laughs> won't stay on this dive for too long because you can go back to episode one and hear all about <laughs> it. But that was a really, really like total Wild West time of 
finding music before it was even out and just kind of getting it. And I think that a lot of people that are using Spotify are kind of after the same thing. So, you know, there's a lot of music that's out there. And if you're someone that's interested in things beyond the music itself, but if you're kind of like me and you enjoy the business side of it, or if you find like working with musicians to be really fun, the music industry needs more good people that do that stuff. So if you're a good Definitely. person and you like those things, go for it. If you're not, don't, please. We don't <laughs> need more shitty people in the music industry. That's so true. Well said. Um, I have a question from Matt. Um, more, more of like a recent question or um, to do with the pandemic. Uh, he wants to know which breweries you think adapted especially well to the situation of the past year the best? Um, whether it be best delivery, pickup systems, safest experience, uh, best new brews, etc. So I think that there were certain breweries that were set up to succeed based on what the CDC's guidance was and what sort of ended up transpiring with uh, social distancing and with uh, e-commerce coming online. I don't think there's, I don't think I'm going to say anything that's going to not be already out there as far as perspectives. But if you were a brewery that was set up to distribute very well, whether it was in like the grocery stores or convenience stores, then you didn't really lose a lot of volume. And if you look at the uh, statistics that the Brewers Association released recently, um, you'll see that uh, some of those breweries were flat, if not growing. Small breweries did have some challenges, especially those that didn't have those setups or that were based on heavily whose sales were based on draft or whose were own premise or like brew pubs like they struggled. And some of them did well with like uh, direct consumer initiatives or pickup and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think that there were people that did that very well. I think that the real innovations and the real sort of long-term interesting things that people can do as a result of what happened have yet to be seen. And I will say on top of that as well, there were some interesting things that people did that were very good, but also during the pandemic and especially as of recent in this recording, there was also a very ugly underbelly of the industry as well when it comes to uh, all types of discrimination, all types of sexual harassment and things mm -hmm. like that. And so I, I have kind of a mixed answer because there were a lot of good things that happened in terms of companies maybe finding themselves or adapting and finding new ways to reach people. But that always wasn't really done in the right way. So I hope that, um, you know, in the industry can kind of overcome some of these hurdles that are admittedly wider society issues as well mm -hmm. and come out on the better side, not just on what they sell, but how they treat people too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's interesting to see how businesses have conducted themselves over the pandemic. That's been my big thing. And, you know, with the reckoning craft beer is facing right now, I think it's just a further, uh, you know, it, it shows just how blatantly racist and sexist things are in the industry. And it tends to be those breweries who also don't really adhere to the precautions. But 
I want to highlight Metropolitan because they are actually, in my opinion, doing really well with, you know, the CDC guidelines. They were always on top of it. They took really good care of their employees. You know, as Alexi mentioned, the smaller breweries, they don't really have an avenue to directly get their product in front of consumers unless they come to the tap room. So they were, you know, banking on people coming to the tap room even through it all because they needed that source of revenue to stay there. And I think they did a really good job of, you know, balancing needing to be open to stay, keep the business afloat, but also trying to keep their employees and customers safe at the same time. And I I, I really can't speak enough good words about how well I think they handled the pandemic. Uh, You know, hats off to Tracy and Doug. You did amazing through all this. And we're not out of the woods yet, but, um, you know, we, we are getting there. And I will list uh, a company that I think has done pretty well uh, through this. And that is, is, was uh, a small, he's a, a, a small producer here in Chicago. And uh, on account of sort of his unique position as uh, a brewer without a brewery, he was able to take advantage of direct delivery to customers in addition to distributing to stores and things like that. And so what he really did was basically personally delivered everything that he produced either to stores or to the customers and made an effort of getting in front of as many people as he could. That was buying his product to say hi and get to know them. I mean, he's selling a extremely artisanal product that uh, you know, isn't really for every beer drinker, but it does highlight the importance of being in front of your customers as an owner and as a operator and uh, being able to uh, build a relationship with them because ultimately, um, you know, that's what's going to allow you to survive outside of your innovations and scale is your relationship with your customers. Absolutely. And I think it's those companies whose owners did take take charge during the pandemic that uh, we're going to see those people succeed after this as well. It's yeah. In the right way. In the right way. <laughs> <laughs> well, well said. Uh, I have another question um, from Matt. He wants to know how you feel about returning to full capacity concerts this summer and fall. So long as people continue to get vaccinated and follow CDC guidelines, I think we can have a fun summer. Let it fucking rip. <laughs> That's what I say. Awesome. Um, another question from Matt. Uh, he says, this summer, what are each of your like ideal first nights out going to look like? Whether you've already had one or you're planning <laughs> one, but like you're vaccinated, everything's opening is there specific bars, restaurants, or venues that you miss the most? And or which bands are you most excited to see live as soon as possible? Wow. That's a big question. That is a huge <laughs> question. I am dying for my karaoke nights back at a Cafe Mustache oh, on yeah. Sunday. That is probably my biggest thing I'm looking forward to. Uh, but outside of that, I miss just shows at the Empty Bottle honestly doing like uh well well it's no longer bike cafe but pizza friendly pizza now and doing some dinner before that and then having a few drinks at the empty bottle before the show starts that was always a favorite pastime and i look forward to that just yeah being able to do food 
and a show anywhere in Chicago. I don't even care at this point. Just put me in a club and I'm there. Do you know if the Empty Bottle and Cafe Mustache, uh, if they're open for full capacity? Because I know restaurants and bars are allowed to now. Right. So I know Cafe Mustache, they're playing with the idea of opening the bar soon. Okay. Uh, that Their cafe is open during the days. So go please support them. Have some coffee. Uh, so karaoke soon, but it's not this weekend. <laughs> I hope so. Not this weekend. We'll see. That's a crowded event. So I imagine yeah. it's going to take a little bit to get up to that. But uh, I look forward to that. And then as far as the empty bottle goes, Alexi, where where are they at? As of this recording, they are open for limited capacity. They are doing shows, limited capacity, very limited capacity for those, as is Talia Hall. And I think uh, throughout the summer, we're going to see places continue to do limited capacity shows and eventually full capacity. Um, and a lot of that is based on the CDC guidance. I know that the empty bottle and I think all these venues, the smaller venues, I should say, are uh, open for business with limited capacity. So if you wanted to go be a bar patron at the empty bottle, you could be. Mm hmm. Uh, what, what is the band you're most looking forward to seeing? That's like, good. uh, this is hard, <laughs> this is hard because of the timing of this recording and what I know is in the future that's not announced, <laughs> but maybe announced when this comes out. I'm looking to, uh, forward to booking more shows at the empty bottle and I'm looking forward to announcing those and I will be looking forward to every single one of those as far as shows that are like on the calendar that are maybe at other places. I just don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I'm not really probably going to be going to Riot Fest or Lollapalooza or any of those uh, larger events, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm sure that if I cared about any of that stuff, I would <laughs> be really thrilled to do it. Uh-huh. Riot Fest should be a fun time this year as well. The so Smashing Pumpkins. Smashing things. Pumpkins and Nine Inch Nails. I love it. Nine inch nails so much. So mm -hmm. it should be a good time. It'll be nice. All right. So I have a question from George. Why did you start this podcast? Did you always want to have a podcast or was it something to do during the lockdown? I think you've maybe mentioned it in one of your first episodes, but please elaborate. So I've actually have a relatively decent history with music journalism. I had a zine out of high school. I uh, that developed into a record label. I had some feeble attempts at radio in college and got my uh, host station KUPS in a bit of trouble uh, on account of having a foul mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really into writing. And so and so I think that like a lot of this stuff for me was kind of built in uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, and so when, when we had been talking about the podcast, uh, for probably maybe three or four months before it actually took form, yeah. uh, to give some credit to where credits due, uh, Jason Ryder, whose studio we're in right now, uh, <laughs> definitely helped us get off the ground and pushed us, uh, into the direction of actually making this happen. Uh, Mikael Medin was always very supportive and, uh, he has a very excellent role-playing podcast in Swedish that is number one in the country. If you, if you want to hear that, number um, one. <laughs> so I like, I think that, 
uh, a lot of this stuff was built in and I was just, we kind of need a little push sometimes to actually do something like this. But the best encouragement is always like, just fucking do it. Absolutely. And figure it out. And that's what podcasting kind of is for a lot of people is you can have all these great ideas, but if you're not actually doing it, they, they don't exist. Mm -hmm. And so I think that podcasting came really naturally because of all of the experience in the past. And it's a medium that sort of fits what at least I'm comfortable doing now. I don't want to transcribe interviews anymore. <laughs> and I am not really as much of a writer as I once was. And so this format kind of works very well for churning out content. And so I would say that, uh, you know, this is something that was built in for a while, but, uh, you know, just took a little bit of a push from a couple of different people in different parts of, of our lives to actually happen. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. I think for me, uh, when you asked me to co-host, I never really saw myself doing a podcast. Uh, but you know, as we've done it more and more, I'm like, yeah, you know, I could, I, I, I'm into this. I enjoy, you know, chatting, you know, it's kind of like a round table almost where we sit and we have a conversation and it filled this void in the pandemic where we didn't really have that. We weren't able to go out to bars and talk with new people and, you know, express ideas to one another. So it filled that void that we all kind of had during the pandemic. And for me, at least it, it's just grown more and more on me. And it's interesting because I can't really see not doing it at this point. It's just there. <laughs> yeah, I would say I agree with you. And it's actually sort of unearthed a lot of interest that kind of got buried below all the like beer and like record label and management stuff that um, created these like uh, prehistoric layers in my brain <laughs> that now that I'm like drilling back into them in some way, I'm actually finding a lot of things that uh, used to give me a lot of joy. So it's really, really uh, fun to take those skills and bring them back. And then also to network with a lot of people that are writing and are active in the journalism community today. Uh, that's been uh, really, really fun and has allowed me to, uh, yeah, do this like a little bit more, I think like professionally and have it sort of develop, help me develop uh, other skills that aren't necessarily related entirely to this podcast, but are just uh, really good professional development skills. That mm -hmm. doesn't need to be in here. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, you know, it's, it, it is interesting when we talked to, you know, we talked with Dr. Garth and, um, you know, talking about mead and sustainability and like this environmental impact. And it's, you know, it's, it's really made me realize how passionate I am about certain things and specifically, you know, related to environmentalism and stuff like that. So this podcast has been a good outlet to kind of express that in a, in a way that I think is tangible for people that isn't overly burdening in any way. <laughs> That's great. I think it's awesome that you guys are, you know, inspiring each other and, and inspire, like re-inspiring yourselves, um, while entertaining and inspiring other people that are listening. So 
That's wonderful. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> um, all right. So I have a question from one of your listeners named Sean. He wants to know that when you started out, were there any dreams or expectations for the podcast that you have not realized yet? And if so, why? Ooh, this is a good question. So I would say that at the beginning, our expectations weren't really massive. Mm -hmm. We just, the goal, uh, I think, was to keep a pulse on what's happening with beverage and with music and to share conversations that are reflective of our sort of collective worlds of interest. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's exactly still the same in a lot of ways. I just think yeah. that we're sort of like little mice following crumbs of cookies everywhere. And like that web is just getting bigger and bigger. And that's the, the beauty of doing this and of, you know, um, of podcasting and being sort of curious and being exploratory is that you can learn more. So I would say that, uh, you know, there's no, we, we, we don't expect to be millionaires or to, no. we don't have any kinds of like expectations in that way, but we do want to be good at what we do. And we're always trying to do that and to exceed what we've done before, but mm -hmm. like <laughs> we're, we have a level of modesty in some way. Absolutely. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, expectations maybe started going out, uh, end of last summer where Alexi and I would have our little, uh, conversations about who we were going to start bringing on the show next. And we definitely didn't see it happening last year, but we talked about floating the idea of, you know, bringing the show on the road and talking to people who aren't in Chicago. And so I think for me, if there's any expectations, it's maybe taking this show on the road and talking with people in different areas in person. Um, and so, you know, because that just broadens our horizons even more like Alexi was saying, and it's traveling is something we both enjoy experiencing different people and food and beverage in different places. It's, it's a passion of both of ours. So I think for me, if we, if we're able to take this on the road and do that, that is we've, we've succeeded to me. Awesome. Um, another question from Sean. Are there episodes that in hindsight, if you had the chance, you'd like to redo in a different way and why? I, I like this question a lot. We have such a <laughs> smart audience. <laughs> we really do. I love it. <laughs> so I, I think that we've learned a lot and we've developed a variety of different skills over time just as a result of putting in the hours and talking to people and, uh, you know, Sam for you editing, uh, as well. Mm -hmm. I think we've kind of developed some skills. And so when the COVID spikes, when the COVID cases started spiking, this was like, uh, I mean, not was this, was that like the third wave in October? Yeah. We of had last like a year? third wave. Yeah. So, third wave COVID spikes, we retreated home basically for recordings and we developed like a whole new kind of set of protocols and sort of understanding of how we were going to conduct our interviews. And that was when we really started to get a little bit more adventurous about 
um, guests from guests from far away and just sort mm -hmm. of saying yes to those ideas more and not really thinking about things geographically. So, uh, which I think really enhanced, uh, our enjoyment of doing this quite a bit. And so what I would love to be able to do, and I wish this is me actually answering a question for once <laughs> is I would like to go back to some of those early interviews and take some of those skills that we have now and apply them to those interviews because they are like really different and the stuff mm -hmm. that we do in person is a little bit different than when we're at home and we're in our comfort zone and we're having, you know, conversations with people um, and vice. And, you know, like uh, I would love to have some of our guests that we've had from abroad mm -hmm. in. That would be a lot of fun. Um some would be a handful probably, but it, it would be, you know, I think that there's things that we learned that would have maybe led to some interesting conversations. And at the same time, I know that like every time we listen to these episodes before they go up, I always wonder, crap, like I should have explored that idea more. You know, when mm -hmm. like you're in the moment and when you're kind of like in the middle of a conversation, uh, one of the more challenging things to do as an interviewer is to be an active listener, but at the same time, being able to step out and look at the broader picture. Mm -hmm. And so I think with that skill that we're a little bit better at uh, now, you can be the judge of that as a listener, <laughs> but I think we're a little bit better at that. I, I think that it's in those ways that I would, think about redoing or uh, maybe having more like part two conversations with those people. Yeah, I, I uh, also agree. You know, I think there's nothing I really regret per se. I think if anything, there have just been some unstable connections for conversations that uh, Alexi and I have really, really enjoyed. And it's just made uh, everyone being fully engaged in those conversations a little difficult, but I mean, outside of that, we've, I think we've done the best we can for the moment that we were doing it. And so, you know, you can't change the past. So there's no point in trying to think that you can. So I've got another question from George. He wants to know, how do you see the future of heavy hops? Is it going to end when everything opens up again? Or are you thinking of continuing it, satisfying all the millions of fans? Well, we've rescheduled all of our interviews that were supposed to be remote to be done in person. So we're definitely going to keep things rolling. We do plan to continue to engage with guests from afar as well, because we find those conversations to be really valuable and interesting. So I think we're going to kind of keep doing things as we have and maybe uh, just a little bit more in person than we had uh when COVID made that more difficult. I definitely don't see things ending and I know you don't either, Alexi. Uh, we, we really enjoy this, so yeah. I feel like you guys are just getting started. Like you guys are just getting rolling, right? Definitely, absolutely. <laughs> Year one is make or break, I think. Like <laughs> most people either kind of hit their stride in the first year or they do it for six months and they haven't got the time anymore, they give up, so. I feel now kind of like more invested and committed in this than ever. 
Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, I have another question from Matt, which is kind of related to the last question. Uh, what are some goals for heavy hops in the near future? Uh, which you somewhat already touched on. But. Yeah, like I alluded to earlier. Uh, I, I look forward to being able to bring this show for guests who can't be in the studio. And if it's doable for us to bring it to them and, you know, have that meaningful conversation in person, I think it it is certainly more engaging to have people gather in person and have a conversation like that with everyone sitting around as opposed to having someone on a screen to other people, you know, on the other end. And it's, it it was good during the pandemic. Uh, but I feel like it's hard to replace, uh, an in-person conversation. Absolutely. So I have a question for the host in this, uh, top in this sort of world of the podcast. So when you're making the artwork Bryn for these, uh, episodes and like, you're especially dealing with, companies that don't have the most aesthetically (laughs) pleasing like artwork or visual presence, or maybe it's not like a priority for them. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you tackle that? I mean, it's like, and how do you differentiate that process from working with a band that has like incredible visuals and there's so much to choose from? Well, let's see. Well, the first when we first started this and you asked me to work on visuals for you, I think I made a kick-ass logo. Um, but we had kind of decided to make a logo and then we were going to do like a different color variation for each episode. So the first couple ones are just like rays of different colors. So each one was about two colors. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot uh, of effort that went into that part in the beginning. They've definitely evolved quite a bit. So it started out as, you know, if a band had album art, I would just grab colors from it. Um, And then as the episode art has evolved, I'm having a lot more fun with it um, now because uh, it's just it's more creative and we're getting a little getting a little wild. But um, yeah, it, it can. Some of them are challenging and sometimes they're not. But the last handful that I've done have all been really fun. If the band has really awesome visuals, I will try and create something that is not copying what their artists have already done, but it's taking that mood or that kind of style and their colors and creating something new that kind of falls in line with um, the the layout for the episode artwork with your logo in the middle. Um, there's been a couple that have been more challenging where we're interviewing or you're interviewing people that don't have visuals, like you mentioned, aren't musicians, um, people who are doctors and lawyers and things like that. Um, but then I just, I read over your, um, episode outline, see what you guys are going to talk about. And then it's just creative freedom from there. So I, I don't know if that's a very good explanation, but I'm, uh, I'm just, see, I'm trying to be inspired by what you give me and then I'm just winging it. (laughs) I'm having a blast. Personally, I find it super duper cool the way that the art has kind of uh, evolved and gotten a little more interesting and more nuanced and has been sort of reflective of the trajectory of the show as well. Like, I think that it all sort of moves as it's as one organism. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. like a, a really cool thing. And I also think that it's very challenging when there's so much black 
<laughs> between all the metal and then some of the breweries aren't very uh, are playing with like uh, a very colorful palette. So uh, it's a it's a massive challenge. So I think that for the listeners out there, um, definitely pay attention to the visuals because there's a lot of thought and effort that goes into those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. I'm having a lot of fun with it. So uh, this question is from Caesar. Seeing as this channel is developed around metal and beer industries, you've joined forces in a couple of collaborative projects with vegan vendors of Chicago, delivering solid lineup of treats and goodies. What led you guys to these collaborative projects? Why begin with the vegan market? And how did these three cultures coexist? Beer, metal, and veganism. Well, first of all, boredom. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, they, they stemmed from, uh, at first just, you know, mid pandemic, not much going on. So, uh, you know, we were thinking about how to push humbucker out there and metropolitan being a vegan brewery, me working at Pi Pi and having connections throughout the vegan community. Uh, it, it just kind of made sense, you know? And they were a lot of fun to kind of explore the flavor profiles of the beer and what would pair with that with other vegan food items. And so bringing in friends who, you know, I hadn't really seen in a long time because of the pandemic, it just was a good outlet for everyone involved to not only be engaged with other vegan vendors in Chicago, but also, you know, promote smaller businesses like Palermo's uh, or, uh, my friend Megan Humit, who runs Cheese and Thank You, she's, you know, makes some of the best vegan cheeses I've ever had. And so collaborating with Pi Pi and pushing these things out there, it was just a good avenue for not only the beer, but everyone involved. So that's kind of how those things came about. And I mean, metal has been in the past seen as a very machismo culture, very meat heavy and meat centric. But as we, push further and further into the 21st century, you know, there's, there's a paradigm that's shifting and it's not only in metal, it's just society as a whole. So I think it's important to push that message of veganism forward, uh, in communities that, you know, it, it actually is very present in veganism and metal is way more common than a lot of people would probably think. Mm-hmm. And Metropolitan is a vegan brewery as well, right? Correct. And a lot of breweries are not, which I think the average consumer doesn't realize that there's actually animal product in beer at times. That's a that's a good point. So mm-hmm. I don't know exact uh, statistics on it, but there are you know historically um, the non-vegan ingredients that you would find in beer would be in the finings. So in the clarifying agents, there would be animal uh, product in those, and so over time. Uh, you know, there have been new sorts of developments that have allowed for vegan friendly uh, finding agents. Of course, now you have things like lactose that are clearly not vegan mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of adjuncts that are also not vegan. So, um, you know, I think that working with a vegan brewer like Metropolitan, one who kind of uh, is my neighbor. And so <laughs> it's good to support people that are in your neighborhood and who you can kind of share some values with. I think that's very important. And for a beer to be 
um, vegan as well and to work with people that are uh, of that uh, ilk as well is really, really important. Vegan is a, a vegan food item is something anyone can access uh, or sorry, maybe not all can access, but can digest and eat. A vegan mm -hmm. beer is something that many people can eat because it doesn't have animal animal byproducts in it. So I think that there was just sort of a basic understanding with that stuff that there would be something that would uh, fit everyone. And also, I, if I recall correctly, that specific idea was one of the few, like the ideation of that and then the execution of it were like one of the few things that we actually did in person mm -hmm. during that time. So it was really fun to actually go through and have like, very distanced, very safe meetings with people mm -hmm. and actually talk about an idea and execute it when everything else was kind of happening uh, on the internet. I do attribute some of the good kind of execution of all of that to us actually kind of being in the same room and talking these things through and doing it, uh, uh, you know, doing things in that way instead of uh, on the internet. Not as, not as, talking myself into a corner here, but not as though we are not capable of that. But I think that that was something that that type of interaction was something that we all craved and mm -hmm. that uh, sort of pushed the idea along a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I think that's natural too. the like, you know, preferring to interview people in person and whatnot, like us coming from like a bar restaurant background and hospitality, like we're comfortable in that environment where you have face to face time with people and natural conversations. Um, just like I'm more comfortable talking to someone in person than calling them on the phone. It, both are fine, but in person it's always better <laughs> for me, but everyone's <laughs> different. I have another question for you guys from George. Do you think you could combine a live heavy hops during a scorched tundra or will you be too excited and drunk to care about it? I like that question. Oh, yeah, man, that's a good I one. love that. George has the zingers today. <laughs> I would love to do a heavy hops live panel thing or like a, a live interview of some kind, you know, I know that like you can do that stuff on Instagram live and we've done our own sort of back and forth, uh, things on Instagram live. But I think there's a lot of really cool things that can be done with like a panel, uh, like a, a panel sort of session. I think that what we do lends itself pretty well to that. And I think it would be really fun to kind of do that in a bar environment or mm -hmm. in a kind of brewery environment. Those are the things that I'm interested in doing. I think that, uh, for, uh, something like scorched tundra, it's uh, sort of its own thing. And I'm a little reluctant at this point to consider adding a, um, heavy hops, uh, panel component to it in the sort of form that scorched tundra is right now perhaps uh in the future there would be space for something like that though mm -hmm. yeah i think uh as alexi said bringing it in like a live panel format would be good and that would be part of the goal of you know taking this on the road too so actually some of my favorite like live stream ish things like people have talked all about like live concert streams and stuff like that during the pandemic. Actually, some of my favorite things have been like live brewery interviews and stuff like that, um, which is uh, like 
a funny thing to say because there's absolutely no pomp and circumstance of any of that <laughs> in comparison to like the fire and the flames and all the things that you see in like that mm -hmm. behemoth live stream and everything like that. <laughs> um, but uh, for me, like these kinds of conversations are, are very interesting and the, the people are interesting and um, like watching uh, the tour to who's uh uh, which was not in person in Belgium, obviously, but was uh, in video format and being able to like access that, which is something that I probably am not going to Belgium in May every year or every other year when it is. So it was really cool to actually see these people and to hear these kinds of conversations with them um, in that format. Uh, obviously seeing it in person would be sweet, but I live in Chicago and going to Belgium's <laughs> far away and I can't in a pandemic. So like, I think that there's a lot of value. Uh, like what I'm getting at is that there's a lot of like fun and value to the live streaming of these kinds of things, just as much as there is with the concerts, which has probably been more discussed. Mm -hmm. This is my uh, favorite question from the questions that were submitted. Um, is Mick? Or Mike? Mick. Mick. Yeah. Mick. Okay, so Mick. I wasn't sure. Um, Mick wants to know, also, when can I buy Heavy Hops merch and support the podcast? Excellent question, Mick. So if you want to support the podcast financially, which we appreciate, uh, there are costs that uh, we incur in putting this together. Uh, we've recently set up a sort of a donation platform on a website called Kofi, K-O hyphen F-I. There's a link to it on our website. You can check it out. But basically, you can give uh, as much or as little as you would like uh, to us. And all that money goes straight into all of the associated costs with putting that together. I would love to, uh, and if you do do that, you get a, a link to join our Discord community online, which is uh, small but growing. And I want to kind of use that space as a way of not having to use social media to interact with people <laughs> that like what we do. Mm -hmm. So give a little something of what you'd like and you can join us there. And we would love to work with people to kind of explore ideas and to... Um, do like fun things. So uh, check us out there if you want to support in that way. Um, you can obviously like give us ratings on Apple Podcasts or leave reviews, which is really helpful for us as far as like visibility on that platform. That's mm -hmm. where most people listen to us. So if you're listening in that way, consider that. As far as merch, Bryn Gleason sitting across from me has put together a pretty awesome t-shirt. And so I would love to be able to print that uh, someday soon. So perhaps one initiative discussed may lead to another. <laughs> Absolutely. T-shirts are a great idea. T-shirts yeah. are so great. So if you want t-shirts, donate now. <laughs> um, what I will say uh, on top of that, I mean, we will do the shirts eventually. So uh, don't don't feel as though you have to donate in order to have the privilege <laughs> to buy a T-shirt. What I will say, though, is uh, more of a like thank you to people that have listened to the show. And whether you've listened only one or whether you've listened to every single one, 
we appreciate the time that you've put into listening to our shows. This isn't something you kind of tune in for 15 minutes and listen to. (laughs) So like, thank you for, you know, the time that you spend and for the, especially the people that engage with us, we really appreciate that. And we kind of thrive on that. So the Mm -hmm. more of that, that we get kind of maybe the more we can all kind of grow this thing uh, together. Um, Also, you know, there's people like uh, Jason who hosts the studio. Why don't you say something, Jason? Oh, I want a t-shirt. <laughs> They're coming. They're coming. <laughs> Jason uh, generously donates time uh, and space for us to be able to record this podcast. So thank you very much to mm-hmm. to him and for the encouragement previously uh, discussed. Um to Bryn for creating the artwork for all of our episodes for Sam for donating time to edit, uh, these episodes, which can sometimes be an endeavor. And also, uh, there's a couple people behind the scenes like, uh, Steve Seabode who helps me with all the web development stuff. Uh, we appreciate, and I appreciate, uh, all the work that you've done with me for basically, I think, 20 years now. So (laughs) thanks for coming on that fun journey. Um, yeah, I don't know who else that. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Uh, we tend to ramble a lot, so it means a lot when everyone is engaging, like Alexi said, and you know, everyone who supports us, whether it's through your artwork, through the studio time, we just appreciate everyone and we're going to keep doing this as long as we can. Keep on diving and getting heavy. So another question for our host for this episode. Before we go. Oh, before we go? I thought you should splice this in. Oh, he says I should splice it in. Splice it, Sam. I'm going to keep this as an outtake loop. (laughs) Splice it. I can splice it in. For our host, you kind of have an interesting experience with our episodes in a way you hear them at the same time as everyone else, but you have this insight through access to like our outlines and whatever kind of notes we put together ahead of time, which um, is a varying degree of involvement depending on the (laughs) guests. So I think you know some people that we've had on the show previously to them actually actually appearing. And so I'm kind of curious as to if you've kind of had a perception or uh, of someone that's one way, and then after you listen to the episode, if that has changed or if there was any episodes that may have been particularly surprising to you. So I've enjoyed a lot of uh, a lot of the episodes. Um, my favorite one or the one that was most interesting to me, if I had to pick one, because I, I, I honestly do like a, quite a few of them. Um, but ironically is the only other episode apart from my own, where you interview a visual artist, um, your interview with mute neighbor, I thought was really interesting. Um, I've met him before I've purchased some of his artwork and I've admired his work a lot. Um, I enjoyed creating the visuals for his episode. Um, and I was curious to what, uh, you guys would talk about and what he would have to say, because I feel like when you, you see visual art from someone, at least as another visual artist, you you really hope that their artwork is an honest uh like a reflection of themselves and a reflection of the culture that they're submerged in and not um you know someone who 
is just making something just to make it or um, which it's okay to make things just because you enjoy making them. But um, I've talked to a lot of artists who are, you know, struggling to try and get by, um, you know, with the starving artist cliche. And then people start to buy a specific thing that they're making. So then they just put all their effort into it. And sometimes it's random and sometimes they have no personal deep connection to it. And I love um, hearing from an artist who just seems really on you, honestly, um, you know, just living their passion project. And I feel like Mute Neighbors, um, like political um, opinions and honestly, some of his really dark perspectives on things in general um, kind of confirmed for me that his artwork is just extremely genuine and it makes me like it even more. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. His episode was really good and I really enjoyed our conversations with him. That was a highlight. Not to sort of like diminish the sort of like, um, intensity of that episode, but that was my mother's favorite episode. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't diminish it at all. (laughs) That makes it so much better. I don't really think it's the episode that you'd think like uh, an elderly elderly lady would. She's not elderly. (laughs) (laughs) It's not an episode uh, a mother would necessarily gravitate towards as a favorite. Uh Uh-huh. It was was genuine, though, and you know, mute neighbor does things with intention. And I think he conveyed that really well in that episode. Mm -hmm. So everyone, thank you. We'll see you next week.